Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. Thank you, Father, for this night and for being here and being able to study and be challenged from your word. Thank you for your grace in Christ's name. Amen. Um, what we'll do here is we'll go about a little over an hour or so. Um, have, them, have them bring the pizza in about, what, 7.30? 7.30. Yeah. Um, and then I've got to go to a, a meeting while you're all eating pizza, and I'm eating pizza. Then I'll be back. We'll grade the test. You can go home early. Yeah. But don't tell Richard Fisher. No, that's all right. He wouldn't care. Yeah. Um, keep the tapes. Did, did everybody get tapes from last time? Just keep those, courtesy of Church of the Open Door. And I got to give you here, Myrtle. Here's another set. Hopefully, these came out for you. you can, Put them in your library. Um, sorry about last week, but I was in no position to teach. So, all right, well, let's uh, finish up the book of Acts. We've got seven chapters to do, or eight chapters here. And all we can do is just hit the high points. Um, <coughs> did everybody get to, well, except Myrtle here. This is uh, chapters 21 through 26, I think, is what you got on the tapes. Is that right? 21 through 26? So that, that covers that. So we'll, we'll just fly through those really quickly and really talk about 27 and 28 um, tonight. Um, as far as uh, the next course would be 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we'll be using MacArthur's commentaries. I also have a um, couple of paperbacks. I can't remember who... Who wrote the paperbacks, though? One of them's Homer Kent, and I can't remember the other one. All right, if you don't want to buy the MacArthur commentary, you can buy those. Um, anyways, in Acts 21, we have Paul on his way to Jerusalem, right? And, uh, of course, on his way to Jerusalem, he meets this guy named Agabus. What did Agabus tell him? Don't. Don't. Did Agabus tell him not to go? Not, he told me he's going to be um, bound. Bound. Yeah. Agabus said, "If you go, you will be bound." He did not tell Paul not to go. And you know, a lot of uh, Bible scholars want to debate and kill trees on this thing, on whether Paul was in the will of God or not. Well, let's stop and think about it. what did Paul, when Paul was first called to the ministry. What did God tell him that he would eventually do? He would suffer. He would suffer. And at some point, huh? He would go to the Gentiles. Specifically, who else would he get to talk to? Kings. Kings. Well, who's the king? Caesar. Caesar. All right. So how is Paul going to get the, an audience with Caesar? One by way. It's kind of hard to do, right? If Paul just trots into Rome and says, hey, I'm here to preach to Nero, that probably wouldn't work, would it? That probably wouldn't go off very well. Um, he wouldn't get close to Caesar. But when Paul was made a prisoner, right, and when he appealed to Caesar, which, by the way, was a right of every Roman citizen to appeal to the Supreme Court, he had a right to make his appeal to Caesar, then by law, by Roman law, as a citizen, he had his day in court in front of Caesar. And that was the way God had arranged for him to preach to Caesar. And he did it on the penny of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, Paul didn't have to um, try to arrange his own transportation to Rome. Um, he was actually taken there by the Roman government who paid his fare, paid his way. And not only that, they put him up in a house for two years. Um, they took care of him. So this was God's providential way of getting Paul to Rome. And the thing to understand is that all the Bible says is that Agabus told him, if you go, you will be bound. Agabus did not tell him not to go. Now, in the in the human um the human perspective, what did many of the disciples not want him to do? 
They didn't want him to go because they did not want to see him put in the bonds. All right. And that's a normal human reaction, isn't it? We don't want to see people suffer. We don't want to see them hurt. Um, but this was God's plan. This was God's program. And what was Paul taking with him when he was going back? The offering, right? And we're going to find out about that in, for, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 11, and 12, and 13, where it talks about Paul took this collection to take back to the saints in Jerusalem because of the famine that was going on. He had a money gift to take back there, and he wanted to make sure he got it back. And he wanted to also visit the temple while he was there. And that was the plan. The plan was to go back. And all it's saying when in verse 11, thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. All that's saying is that this is what the Holy Spirit is saying, but that did not keep Paul from doing what God wanted him to do. What chapter? Chapter 21. Oh. Chapter 21, verse 11. And it's sort of like Christ, right? I mean, Christ knew in the Garden of Gethsemane what he was going to go through, but that did not stop him from going through it. It did not prevent him from actually going through. And that's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves. You know, if we were in a similar situation... <coughs> And God says, you know, if you go preach the gospel over here, you're going to go to prison. And if we feel that felt that was God's will for us to go, would we still go? Probably not. <laughs> some would, some wouldn't, right? But Paul wasn't going to let a little thing like prison imprisonment or persecution stop him. Did he feel it was an honor to uh, suffer for or feel? God felt him worthy. To yeah. Suffer. And, you know, one, one of the one of the things that we really don't have a good grasp on is um, American Christians is a theology of suffering. Our theology of suffering is such that it's bad. Suffering is wrong. Suffering is not right. If you're suffering, you don't have enough faith. If you're suffering, you... You know, you need a deliverance. Um, you need to get the demons off you. You need something, you know. We don't have a really good theology of suffering. The Bible says that one of the normal components of the Christian life is to suffer. That's normal. That's not abnormal. It's normal. If you're not suffering, it's abnormal. Um, Christ said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul, look at poor old Paul there. If there's anybody who's filled with the Spirit, it was Paul. And yet, what did he do? He went from one you know, suffering condition to another. And, um, you know, we need to understand that suffering is part of the Christian life. It is. And don't let people tell you that when you're suffering, somehow you're out of God's will. That may be when you're closest to God, when you're going through that valley. Paul uh, said, that the least I can do is to suffer, you know, Philippians chapter 3. He's talking about in Philippians 2 and 3, he's talking about suffering. And he says, you know, it, it's my joy to suffer like Christ because he suffered for me. It's the least thing I can do to suffer for him. He even saw that as a badge of honor to be counted worthy to suffer. Earlier on, remember Peter and uh, John, right? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. You know, suffering is normal. So if you're suffering... For Christ, because you're doing the right thing, that's normal. If you're not, you may just be lukewarm. Yeah, you may be lukewarm. I mean, it would have been easy for Paul to avoid suffering. He just didn't have to preach, right? Wouldn't have had to suffer. And after these days, verse 15, Paul packed up and took off for Jerusalem. And 17, he arrives in Jerusalem. Um, and meets with James. And who's James here? Half-brother of Jesus, the elder, apparently the chief elder of the Jerusalem church. Now, technically, are all elders the same? Technically, they are. Technically, an elder is an elder is an elder. But in the organizational structure of a church, there are some elders that, you know, are more 
take on a greater role of leadership because of their giftedness or abilities. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. James here was the lead elder. And uh, when Paul greeted them, he told them everything that God had done through the Jews, through, the, through his ministry to the Gentiles. Um, a lot of Jews believed. But verse 21, but they have been informed about you. And again, now, now stop. How many years after the Jerusalem Council has this taken place? Ten. When did the Jerusalem Council take place? Acts 15. 40. Somewhere around. I somewhere around mid 40s. 42, oh, yeah, 43. Somewhere around in there. Um, and when is this taking place? About 12 years later. This is about AD 59. All right, close to the, um, probably late AD 50s, probably AD 59, somewhere around there. So it's a good long time afterward. And what is the scuttlebutt still being said about Paul? You know the Jews? Yeah, he's, he's telling the people, he's telling, telling them to forsake Moses. <laughs> And what, if this shows you anything, it shows you how deeply entrenched Judaism was in the minds of these Jewish Christians. It was so deeply entrenched that, you know, really uh, 20, 20 years after, 25 years after the crucifixion, they're still struggling to understand the separation of law and grace. They're still trying to get out of that. Because they're saying there, we've been informed that you teach all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. Don't circumcise your kids, which to the Jew was a mark of their Judaism. And don't walk according to the customs is the traditions, particularly the, the um, probably the dietary ones. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. That all may know that these things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided they should observe no such thing except they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, blood, strangled, and sexual immorality. So what's going on here? What, what are they doing? With Paul here. This is James, right? This Jerusalem Council. What are they recommending he do? Yeah, um, you know, look, Paul, we got some guys here who are going to take a vow. That's one of their things that they do as a Jew. And, uh, you know, they're going to be purified, shave their heads, etc. Why don't you pay their expenses? Why don't you, you know, go along with them? And that way, at least, nobody can say that you're not a Jew, you're not doing Jewish things. Um, why don't you submit to the weaker brother? Who's the weaker brother in this case? James. Not James. Oh, the Jews. Yeah. yeah. So, so James is really saying, look, Paul, let's placate, you know, those who think that somehow you've abandoned Judaism by having you take a Jewish ceremony, going through this Jewish ceremonial ritual, going to the temple, purifying yourselves, you know, let's lay that accusation to bed. Now, do you think that was a good idea to do, a good thing to do? Yeah. Well, we know what happened. We know what it caused. But but the, the general counsel, you think that was sort of a good thing to do? Yeah. I think people were walking so close to the Lord that it probably was for him. I think it was. I think it was a good thing to do. Yeah, and see, the, the Bible always calls on the stronger brother to acquiesce to the conscience of the weaker. All right. Um, now, theologically, did Paul have to do this? No. He had the freedom not to do this. We would have been perfectly justified to say, you know, forget it. But in order to keep the purity, the, the, not the purity, but the unity of the church in order to placate the, the you want to call it the uh, 
the conscience of the Jews that said, well, he's abandoned us. In order to placate that, let's have you do this, this vow, this ritual. And that way, at least you can answer the accusation that you've abandoned Judaism. Because they say, well, how can he have abandoned Judaism if he did this ceremonial ritual? All right. So that's that was their counsel. So Paul did that. He took the men the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering would be made for each one of them. This was a vow that they would make. It was a time of spiritual um, reflection and cleansing, at the end of which you would make a sacrifice, basically. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Who are these Jews from Asia? Well, they followed Paul all over the world, didn't they? In fact, they're, he's, they're the reason he wrote Galatians. They dogged him from city to city to city. All right. And they stirred him up and they, they stirred everywhere. They said, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Was any of that true? No, no none of that was true. All right. Now, one of the things you got to understand that um, the, the big one here is bringing Greeks into the temple. That was a no-no. In fact, uh, they dug up the bronze, bronze plates. There's a large bronze plaque like this plate that was on the courtyard. There's the court of the Gentiles, then there was a wall, and then you had the court of Israel. And there's a large bronze plate. And basically said, if you're a Gentile and you pass this point, you're guilty for your own death. You could be killed immediately as a Gentile for passing that point. Gentiles were forbidden to enter the inner court of the temple. They were forbidden. And in fact, the Roman government, this is interesting, the Roman government um, kept for themselves the um, capital punishment. In other words, any country that they would conquer, that country was not allowed to administer the death penalty. It was administered by Rome, except for this one exception. Rome made this one exception. This is the only exception that they allowed for a, a, a conquered people to administer the death penalty is if a Gentile would be found in the temple. Didn't they still stone? No. I was going to say, if he's still alive, then uh, they must not have found him in the temple. What's that? Uh, how did they say Paul brought a Gentile into the temple? They assumed that he did. They don't know that he did. They assume that he did. And if a Gentile would have been brought in there, that Gentile would have been killed. They assume, because it later on says, see, they had seen him with Trophimus. And they had just assumed that Paul brought him into the temple. See, in their mind, Paul had abandoned, you understand, in their mind, Paul had abandoned Judaism. That's, 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 that's their main thought. So if he was abandoned Judaism, then then in their mind, there's no big thing for him to bring a Gentile into the temple because he's abandoned Judaism anyways. He might as well bring a, temp, a Gentile in there, right? So that was their whole mentality. And of course, this will, this will cause a major riot in the temple. And in fact, that's what happened. I'm not going to read the whole passage coming along here, but the, the basic idea here in verse chapter 21 is that Paul... You know, you got this whole mob that's ready to literally tear him apart, thinking that somehow he did something wrong. This idea of due process and all that, forget it. Not here, not with a mob. It's like an ancient lynch mob, you know, that's going to take you out and lynch you. You know, there's no such thing as due process, you know. Um, so what happens here? Well, Paul's arrested. And... Uh, in fact, what happened is, in order to keep the uh, the thing from blowing up, the commander of the garrison there at Israel, um, in Jerusalem, he had to go and rescue Paul from the mob. Now, if you if you go there to back then, if you in the temple, they had a, I think it's called the Antonia, was a large tower that was next to the temple, and that's where the Roman soldiers were kept kept themselves, and they were able to look out over the city and see what was going on, you know, and they could quickly respond to any hot spot or any issue, and the Jews were very good at having riots, 
um, they, they sort of had this as an art form. And so the, the job of the Roman um, garrison there was to keep the peace. That was their job. And if there was a riot, they were to quell it as quickly as possible. So the first thing he did when he saw this going on, he hightailed it down there and grabbed Paul and rescued him from this mob that was ready to stone him. All right. Um, now, it's interesting, verse 38, he says, Are you not the Egyptian who sometime ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out in the wilderness? One of the things you've got to understand is that if you think Israel is bad now, Israel-Palestine is bad now, it was just as bad back then. All right. It's been a sore for millennia. All right. And uh, what you had back then is you had uh, these false messiahs that come come around and try to gather Israel and, and have a rebellion and overthrow Rome. You had this Egyptian guy here. Um, remember Thutis and Judas earlier? Gamaliel talks about a Thutis and a Judas that tried to stir up the people. One of them claimed to be the Messiah, and he was that until he got killed by Rome, and that was the end of him. Um, but you had a lot of these things going on. The other thing you had is you had terrorists. If you think the Arabs are terrorists, you got to understand Israel was the first terrorist group. They had guys called Sakari, and they would hide daggers and go through a crowd to slaughter people that they didn't like. Um, they were the zealots. Remember Simon Zealot, Zelotus? He was one of these. And uh, what they would do is, uh, you know, if you were a collaborator or somehow you were in with Rome, you know, they would target you and they would sneak up to you in the middle of a crowd and stick a dagger in your stomach and kill you, slaughter you right there. Um, terrorists. And, uh, you know, it was, it was bad news trying to be a commander here and try to keep the peace. And he assumed that Paul was one of these guys that was going to try to foment a rebellion, of course. And uh, when Paul spoke to him um, in Greek, he was surprised. All right. And he said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I implore you to permit me to speak to the people. So Paul was able to address Israel and he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And, and uh, you know, us here in America, we don't understand, you know, the, the multilingual status of a lot of countries. You know, Ellie came over here, our German exchange student. She spoke German and French and English, and she was learning Latin. And she was amazed that, you know, in America, you know, we know English. Well, don't you know any other? I said, no. So why not? Well, say so I can go a thousand miles in that direction, that direction, that direction, that direction, and everybody speaks English. There's no need for me to learn another language. In Germany, you know, you go 300 miles there, 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 there. You've got French, Spanish, you know, you name it. they got all kinds of different languages. So you, you have to learn different languages. Back then, there were many languages. Greek was the, the intellectual language of the day. Then you had the common Hebrew language. Then you had Aramaic that many of the people spoke. The Hebrew language was what was the language of the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis. It was the official Jewish language. And so when Paul spoke to them, he was speaking to the rabbis, the religious leaders. All right. And then in verse chapter 22, and I'm not going to go through all of this, but he um, he basically gives them his testimony. He's saying, you know, I was on my way to Damascus. I was going to arrest the Jews or not the Jews, but the Christians. And the next thing I know, this bright light shows up. I'm on my face. This is Jesus. And next thing I know, I'm in the ministry. This is the second of three times Paul gives his testimony. He gave it back. And we find it in Acts 9. We find it here. We find it later on before um, Felix and Festus. And uh, he basically... It gives the whole the whole calling. How God called him, how God ordained him to the ministry, what he was to preach, where he was to go. And he basically said, um, this is what really sent him off. Verse 21, then he said to me, depart for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And that just, of course, that was, that was what cooked his goose. 
you know, until then, you know, they could amen and hallelujah and as long as he's going to the Jews. But so you got to understand the Jewish mindset. Gentiles are the fuel, the fire, it's hell. The idea that God would turn to a Gentile was so anathema to a Jew, they couldn't stand it. And if you want to really read a good example of that, look at the book of Jonah, right? God tells Jonah, go, go preach to Nineveh. And Jonah says, see ya, heads the other way, right? Finds a boat that goes to the opposite side of the world. Nineveh's in the east. Jonah's trying to go west over to Tarshish, which is Spain. And of course, we have the whole story. You know, he got thrown overboard. The fish ate him. Fish couldn't stand him, got sick to his stomach, threw him out. Couldn't stand a prophet. That's a joke. Got sick, threw him out. He winds up in Nineveh, preaches in Nineveh. Guess what? Everybody repents. And what was his response? Said, Kill me. They, they repented. Now, what preacher today would like to go into a city, preach the gospel for three days, and have 600,000 people converted? I mean, that you know, that's like heaven, right? Here's what happened, and, and he wanted God to kill him. Why? Because he did not want the message to go to the Gentiles. And that was the problem with these Jews here. The last thing they wanted to hear was that God somehow had brought the Gentiles into this thing. They wanted nothing to do with that. And immediately at that point, they started yelling and raising their voices so much that he couldn't. In fact, they said kill him, that he would dare take God's message to the Gentiles, kill him. Now, why did God save the Jews in the first place? Take the message to the Gentiles. And instead, the Jews pat themselves on their back and, yeah, aren't we special? Now, are we any different today? No. Some of us aren't, are we, in Christianity? We go to our churches, we pat ourselves on the back that somehow we're God's people, and we, we you know, look in horror and askance on those that are, that are pagan and that are liberal or whatever, and we do nothing about it. We just sort of like saying, ah. Let them go. We're not much different in some cases. God called Paul to be the light to the Gentiles. And what they did there, and the commander ordered him to be brought in the barracks, that he should be examined under scourging, was this torture. They are going to torture him to try and get the real scoop on why why everybody hates him. Because their mind, that's, that Paul had to have done something horrible for this crowd to have reacted the way it did. So they're saying, well, let's scourge the guy and let's see if we can extract from him under torture um, what it is that they're all upset about. And then Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And the rhetorical answer is, no, it is not. Remember what happened back uh, when Paul was beaten? And they found out they were a Roman citizen? Made him apologize. Why? Because that was the law. The law was, if you were a Roman citizen, you had a, you had tremendous number, you had a tremendous amount of legal protection in the Roman system. Um, you could not be, in fact, we get a lot of our, our laws from the Roman judicial system. Um, you could not be deprived of property without due process as a Roman citizen. Um, you could not be scourged without due process. Um, you could not be beaten without due process. Um, you had the right at, at, in, in your trial to appeal to Caesar, in which case you would be taken to Caesar to have your case heard and adjudicated. Um, you had a tremendous amount of, of, of protections. Now, if you were not a Roman citizen, all bets were off. But if you're a Roman citizen, you had these protections. And Paul's statement caused this guy to stop. Wait a minute. If, if I were to scourge this citizen of Rome, it could cost him his life. I mean, it was a very serious thing to, um, to mistreat a Roman citizen. You just didn't do that. He went and told the commander. And the commander came and said, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. It said, with a large sum, I obtained a citizenship. Now, a way you could be a citizen in Rome is you had to be born in certain cities or you could buy it. 
the Roman, this Roman commander bought his citizenship. He paid a large price to get it. And Paul said, I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him, and the commander was also afraid after he found out he was Roman because he had bound him. You can even bind a Roman citizen without due process. All right. Um, next day, he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds. He commanded the chief priests and all the council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. So he's trying to find out what's going on here. Why are they so upset with this guy, Paul? Let's check him out. So the next day, he brings the religious muckety-mucks in. And then in chapter 23, you have Paul here before the Sanhedrin. And one of the things that Paul does here is he perceives, verse 6, he perceives that you had the Sadducees and Pharisees in there. So what does he do? He turns it into a riot between them. He throws the bone out. What bone did he throw out? The resurrection. And of course, the Sadducees are saying, no way, and the Pharisees, amen, brother, preach it. And before long, the whole crowd starts fighting one another, and Paul's just standing there watching them go at it. All right. He said, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. And the assembly was divided. And uh, the scribes of the Pharisees probably rose and said, we find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel spoke to him, let us not fight against God. And there was a great dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees wanted to let him go. The Sadducees wanted to kill him. Now, who are the Sadducees? Who, who, what group did they represent? They were the high, the high priests. They were the, they were the aristocracy. You say, well, how in the world did that aristocracy, how were, how were they in charge of the temple if they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead or anything like that? Well, you know, they, it was, a, it was, a, it was a more or less of a figurehead kind of thing. Um, you got to be high priest back then by bribing the governor, basically, the Roman governor. He would name you as high priest. And you got to do that by, by doing that. And Ananias, he's, the, he's sort of the chief potentate Sadducee there. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, was named high priest. Later on, his grandson was named high priest. But the guy behind it pulling the strings was Ananias. The high he used to be high priest. He was older now. But he's the one pulling the strings. He's sort of the power behind whoever's there. And um, the, the soldier, he, he thought Paul would be pulled to pieces by these guys. He uh, had to go and rescue him again from the crowd. And bring him back to the barracks. And then in verse 11, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for if you testified for me in Jerusalem, so must you also bear witness at. So, okay, so so how many people would still want to think that this was not God's will? I mean, the angel of the Lord didn't say, say Paul, you really blew it. Doggone it. Now I'm going to have to get you out of here like I did, you know, Peter. No, he didn't do that. Brad, he said, you know, you've, you've witnessed before men, now you've got to also witness at Rome. So ultimately, where did Paul know he was headed? To Rome. He knew he was headed to Rome. And that's interesting in verse 12, and it was day some of the Jews band together, bound themselves under an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink till they killed Paul, about 40 guys. Um, and then they go to the chief priests and elders and try to get them to uh, have Paul. Hey, why don't, you, why don't you get Paul to come on down here and on his way down, we'll just sort of knock him off and solve our problem here. So they wanted the chief priests and elders to get in on his murder. So in Paul's sister's son, so Paul had a sister. Don't know her name. He heard their ambush. He went in the barracks and told Paul. And Paul told the commander, and the commander, you know, questioned the nephew. And uh, what we have now in verse 23 is uh, he sent up to Felix. Where's Felix at? Caesarea. Caesarea was sort of the governing provincial 
area for that, the Roman seat of governorship for that area. And Felix is the Roman governor who's up in Caesarea. And how he gets, uh, he calls two centurions and calls for 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. How many guys? 472, about 500. They, they, they take Paul up to Caesarea by night with 500 Roman soldiers. You think he was taking any chances that Paul was going to be killed? Now, that was, now I wonder what happened to these poor old guys that made this vow, whether they actually wound up eating or, you know, they starved to death, you know, poor guys. Um, so he sends Paul up there, and he writes a letter, Claudius Lysias. We know this name now is Lysias. Um, to the most excellent governor Felix greetings. Um, and he gives them, you know, the little, the little uh, background there, what happened, what he did. And he's sending him up there because, you know, he's, he's got these people that want to kill him. And he's basically saying, I don't know what they're all upset about. I mean, if you read between the lines, he's basically saying, I'm not. Uh, he had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. He says, I don't have anything to charge the guy with other than when he's walking around, the Jews want to kill him and they're ready to riot. He says, but I haven't found any, him doing anything deserving of death and chains or chains being, of course, imprisonment. I, I can't find anything wrong with the guy. So really, it's now it's your problem. <laughs> he's trying to pawn him off on Felix. So they took him by night. Um, up to Caesarea, delivered the letter to the governor, presented and presented Paul to him. And when the governor read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that it was from Cilicia, he said, "I will hear, I will hear you when your accusers have also come." And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. Cilicia is the province north of Caesarea. Why did he ask him what province he came from? Well, jurisdiction, jurisdiction basically. Um, Judea and Cilicia were both under the legate of Syria. And Felix, of course, Caesarea, that's where Caesarea is. And so therefore, Felix had jurisdiction over Paul. Had he not had jurisdiction over Paul, he would have sent Paul to Cilicia there to be tried. But he had jurisdiction over him. So he kept him in Herod's praetorium up there in Caesarea. And then 24, and after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders in a certain order named Tertullius. The order here, he was a lawyer. That's what he was. He was a lawyer. Um, and they tried to give evidence to the governor against Paul. So here they come. They're trying to make their case against Paul here. And uh, they begin their accusation. Um and he starts out by buttering up Felix. Now, what kind of governor was Felix, remember? He's a horrible guy. He was a bad banana. Um, he had started out as a um, slave, worked his way up to being the governor. And who had he married? Uh, Drusilla. Right? Huh? He was with, he was, yeah. Um, Drusilla and Felix were an item basically, together. Uh, it, it, his, his significant other. Um, but uh, Now, what do you know about Drusilla? She's a Herod, so there can't be anything good about that one. You know? Uh, yeah, she died in Pompeii, I think it was. Um, but you have, and, and by the way, who's Drusilla's related to? Remember? Bernice, Bernice and Agrippa the second, and they're they're yeah, or they think she was, but they don't know for sure. I mean, it's you know, it's the days of the Herods. You know, that's a new uh, soap opera. You know, um, it was quite there was quite a it was quite a immoral family. All right, but part of Felix's power was that he appear, he was connected with Drusilla connected with the Herods, you know, I'd worked his way in. Um, but anyways, in, in chapter 24, of course, uh, they show up there. And I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but basically they're trying to make an, a case against Paul. 
And of course, none of these have anything to do with Roman law. It's all it has to do with, you know, Jewish <coughs> religious beliefs. Did Felix figure that out? You think he sort of figured that out? Do you think Felix had really, do you think he really um, carefully adjudicated this and determined he should keep Paul? No. 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 Ultimately, why did he keep Paul around? Get some money out of him, right? Get some money out of him. Now, what was the problem with that? Paul didn't have any money. Unless you hear the people on TVN who say Paul was a supremely wealthy individual and had all this money, and that's why he was held there because they were trying to get him because Paul was this wealthy guy, and all he had to do was pay it. Look, that's baloney. Paul didn't have any money. Paul didn't have any money. Yeah, tense, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but Paul has a defense before Felix, and he, he basically answers them in, in verses 10 through 21. And he basically boils down and says, you know, the only reason I'm here is because of the resurrection of the dead. I believe in that. It's a religious battle. It has nothing to do with Roman law. I did not violate any Jewish law. I didn't violate the temple law. I did not violate any Roman law. I'm here because they don't like my theology. That's it. That's why I'm here. It's a theological issue. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Who's Lysias? He's the guy that originally arrested Paul. All right. So he's procrastinating. Now, this is interesting. Knowledge of the way. This is the, I think, the first time this shows up. It's not the way international. It's not what it's talking about. But what's it talking about here? Christianity. Christianity. Felix had evidently a rudimentary knowledge of Christianity. All right. He had a little knowledge of it. Um, so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul. He could have liberty, um, not forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Basically, he said, just keep Paul. Don't let him get away. But, you know, if he wants people to visit or that, that's fine. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So here he is with Drusilla, because Drusilla is Herod's grip of the seconds. What do you mean by Herod's grip of the second? What happened to him? He got eaten by worms and died, right? That's Herod's grip of the second. The first, I mean, I'm sorry, the first. First. Herod's grip of the second is, her, is the next Agrippa here. All right. Um, now, as he learned reason about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid to answer, go away now. When I have convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he had also hoped that money would be given him by Paul that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him more for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, Portia's Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. You got to understand what's going on here with Felix. Felix... Uh, was under conviction, wasn't he? But he didn't do anything about it. And he, why did he keep Paul for two years? Well, he wanted to supposedly get some money, a bribe. Now, was that legal for Festus to do? Or, I mean, Felix to do? No, it was illegal. Under the Roman, like our system, <laughs> under the Roman Jewish, or Roman legal system, you were not allowed to take a bribe to release a prisoner. That was bad. You weren't allowed to do that. But Felix was sort of a rotten egg to start out with, wasn't he? So, you know, he wouldn't let a little thing like an illegality get in the way of making a little bit of money on the side. And, of course, him being the sole authority, he could probably have gotten away with it. You didn't have CNN and Fox News keeping an eye on him. So he could have probably gotten away with it here. Um, he have a right to a speedy trial, too. I mean, he still hasn't been charged two years later. He could, they could keep him. They could keep him. And, you know, Paul had a lot of liberty here, too. You know, and he was here for two years. Now, what probably happened in those two years? He wrote. He wrote. Um, probably sent letters. Now, we don't have any of his epistles that he wrote from here. 
But who else was with Paul? And when did Luke write Luke Acts? Probably here, you know. Paul's not going anywhere. He certainly can't be with Paul on a missionary journey. So it gives him time to do research and, and you know, and, and probably come up with the material that he had for the book of Luke and the book of Acts. All right. That's there's always a purpose. And see, that, that's the thing to understand. You know, Paul, Paul never got too rattled when he got thrown into prison because there's always a purpose behind it. See, God, God was in charge. God was in control. And, uh, you know, to him, prison was just another avenue of ministry. You know, and the nice thing about it here is you got Romans, the Roman government supporting it to some extent. You know, yeah. He knew he wasn't going to stay here forever. Now, the reason, verse 27, Porcus Festus succeeded Felix. Felix was recalled to Rome because he was so bad that Nero recalled him. Now, look, if Nero says you're bad, you're really bad. <laughs> you're really bad, you know. Um, and he was recalled to Rome because he was too brutal, causing more trouble than he's worth. And Festus, or Porcus Festus comes in, who is a nobleman, who's really a good governor. He was, he was the opposite of Felix. And uh, why did Felix leave Paul in prison? He could have released Paul. Why did he leave him there? Yeah, because the Jews hated him so much. He was going back. He had to stand before Nero, and he might get into trouble. So it would be nice if the Jews at least weren't there to give him a hard time, too. So let's leave Paul in prison and at least placate the Jews. You know, and that's, that's the whole, it was all political maneuvering is what it was. So you got, um, verse chapter 25, you got Festus coming up to the province, taking over, basically. And uh, what's the first thing the chief priests and them try to do now that you got a new governor? Let's get Paul on trial again. You know? And now what is that? Now, this is two years after Paul is up there. So, you know, they're obsessed with this guy, aren't they? You know, they, it's not enough. I mean, two years later, they still want to hang the guy. Still must be effective, even though yeah. I mean, they still hate him. Man, they're pulling a number like happened back in Corinth, right? When Gallio comes in, they try to get Paul in there and stir up some trouble, so they're trying to do that here. And this is the funny thing. Ephesus is down where? In Jerusalem. The chief priests show up in Jerusalem. And they say, why don't you bring Paul down here and let's have a trial? What were they going to do? Kill him on the way down. You know, They couldn't get him on the way up. Maybe they can pull it on the way down, right? But Felix didn't uh, fall for that. He basically said, look, you want to try him? You come up to Caesarea, where he's at. They want to come down and accuse him. Now, why did it mean down? Well, down in elevation. Jerusalem's up. Caesarea's down. You go down. From... No, Jerusalem was up. Jerusalem is on a plateau. Caesarea's down. Oh, but on the map. Yeah. Down, yeah. This is talking about elevation. This is not talking about north-south. This is talking about elevation. Okay. Every place was down from Jerusalem. Um, so Festus uh, goes and and uh, verses six through eight, he talks to Paul, and then he says, "Well, you know, it'd be nice to do the Jews a favor." He asked Paul, "Would you be willing to go down?" Now Paul's a Roman citizen. Would you be willing to go down to Jerusalem to be tried? Now, what's Paul think? Uh-uh. No, that's not a good thing. He said, I've committed no crime. He said, if I've committed a crime worthy of death, I don't object to dying. Uh, 10, 11. If I'm an offender, if I've committed a crime and I'm worthy of death, I won't, I won't refuse the penalty. But he said, I've done nothing wrong. And... Uh, Therefore, what do I do? I appeal to Caesar. Now, once he did that, that was an irreversible act. Which is too bad because he's going to let him go. You know. Well, here, here's, Paul's, here's Paul's problem. Paul says, okay, let's, let's think here. I go down to Jerusalem. I have no, there's no crime against me. And uh, Festus says, you're free to go. 
See ya. Where's Paul going to go? Well, no, he walks out the door and he's got two million Jews ready to kill him. That's not a very good thing, right? You know, yeah, he's toast. So it's like, why am I going to do that? So, you know, if I go down there and I'm, I'm accused, I go to Rome. If I go down there and I'm freed, I'm dead. So what's he do? Well, he appeals to Rome. Because the Holy Spirit told him he's dead. Well, and he knew that he had to go to Rome, and this is the way to get there, right? It's kind of hard to go to Rome and preach the gospel if you're dead. Yeah. So Festus, when he conferred the council, said, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. All right. So once Paul, once Paul appealed to Caesar, then by law, he had to be taken to Rome to adjudicate his case. And not only they had to be taken to Rome, but what did the governor have to write? <coughs> An accusation, a letter. He had to write, you know, I'm sending this prisoner to you. He has appealed to Rome. Basically, I write a letter to Nero saying he's appealed to Rome. He's appealed to Caesar. Here's the charges. Here's what he did. Here's the evidence for or against. And he had to write that and send it. Now, what was Festus's problem? What do I write? <laughs> he didn't do anything. What do I write? You know? So King Agrippa shows up in verse 13, um, and Agrippa's there with Bernice, who's his niece, or his, his sister. Yeah, I, don't, I can't keep them straight. I can't keep them all straight. Yeah. Drusilla. Yeah. Um, Bernice was not Agrippa's wife, but his consort and sister. And their sister, Drusilla, was married to the former governor, Felix. And this was the talk of the scuttlebutt in Rome that Bernice and Agrippa were having an incestuous relationship, basically. Um, so what does he do? He brings, he tells Agrippa, he says, you know, I have a problem. I don't know what to write against him. And Agrippa says, well, let's bring him in. Let's, let's have also hear him, see what, what he has to say. So... They bring him in the next day, verse 23, with great pomp. Agrippa and Bernice, and, you know, all the royalty and all the rot enter in there. And King Agrippa. And uh, what does Paul do here? Paul gives, in chapter 26, he gives his testimony before Agrippa. Now, you got to understand something about Agrippa. Agrippa was really favorably disposed to the Jews. He really was. Um, he comes from an Idumean family, and some of the Herods were pretty brutal on the Jews, but Agrippa II, he, and he knew the law. He knew the Jewish customs. He knew the laws. Um, and this is interesting. Why did it say Drusilla was a Jewish? Jewish. It's Jewish. Her dad was Agrippa I. Well, the answer to that is that Herod the Great married Mariamne, who was the from the house of the Hasmoneans. The Hasmoneans were the Jewish rulers that ruled Israel during the intertestamental time. And therefore, Herod's kids are descended from Jews. They're part Jews. They're part Jewish. Yeah. But that's the answer to that. All right. Pardon? Well, it says Drusilla was a Jewish. Jewish. Which one? Which one? 20. I'm sorry, 24, 24. It says she was a Jewess. And the way she was a Jewess is that her, her lineage, going back, all right, her, if, you, if you trace the family tree, sorting out all the incestuous relationships and everything else, you find that Herod the Great had married Miriamne. She was an Hasmonean. That's how he sort of married into the royal line of Israel, sort of got himself in there. All right. So that's how that all works out. But Agrippa II was favorably disposed. And so what do you have here? You have Paul recounts his conversion again to Agrippa. And basically gives the same testimony. Now, this is probably not everything Paul said, right? 
but it's the gist of what Paul said. It's the bulk of what Paul said. And what's the, what sad thing do we find about Agrippa here? You almost persuade me. I don't think he's being sarcastic. He says, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. How close can you get and not get there? Pretty close. Right? Pretty close. You know, I remember that song, Almost Persuaded, you know, but lost. And, uh, I, I was afraid. We gotta get the guitar and the twang, and we're all set here. You know. No, there's there's a hymn. There's a hymn. Oh, there's a. Oh, okay. You know. Okay. See, I see. He doesn't know the hymns. He knows the. I know the her. Yeah. There's an old hymn, almost persuaded. Um. And basically, in verse twenty thirty two, there, Agrippa says, you know, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he could have been set free. Because. But now once he appealed to Caesar, there's no way out. He had to go. The law said, once you make that appeal, you've got to go see Caesar. You can't rescind it, nor can the governor rescind it. The governor could not say, well, we won't send you. You had to go. You had that right. He could have let him go, but he, no. He, he By law, he could not. Once, he, once Paul made the appeal to Caesar, the jurisdiction goes over to Caesar. All right. See, see, Paul's under the jurisdiction of Felix, basically. And as long as he's under the jurisdiction of Felix, Felix can let him go or condemn him or whatever. Once Paul appeals to Caesar, which is over Felix or over Festus, Festus has no longer any jurisdiction, judicial jurisdiction over Paul. He could not free him because the only one at that point that could free him is Caesar. That's why he has to go to Caesar. So. He couldn't make Paul. He could not make Paul appear before Agrippa. He was out without jurisdiction. Yeah, and, and, and Paul, he didn't have to, Paul didn't have to appear, but Paul did. You know. Um, chapter 27. I'm not going to go through this whole thing here. Um, but it's a fascinating account of Paul's leadership. Here's a guy who's a prisoner, and by the time he's done, he's basically running the whole, the whole contingent um, on the way to Rome. And uh, for any for any people, you need some money. For any people that uh, that question the authenticity and the accuracy of Acts. They've done study on this chapter here and everything, Paul. This is this is a firsthand account of an, a trip to Rome. The, the places the, 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 that they sailed to, they even found um, an old Egyptian compass. And the northeast part of the compass has Eurachlodon on it. This uh, word here, Euroquillo, it's it's the northeast. Northeaster wind. That, that is a dangerous win. And the Surtees and all, all of these are has been historically and geographically validated as being 100% accurate. Um, but we're not going to go, th we, we don't, we're not going to go through that whole thing. It's just that it's totally accurate. But basically, the bottom line here is that Paul, about AD 60, in this, in this, probably towards the winter of AD 60, is uh, put on a ship to Rome. The reason you, you have to wait until you get the right number of prisoners. You can't just, you know, you got one guy to send to Rome. You got to send a guard with him. That's expensive. So they usually wait until they got, you know, 20 or 30 guys or whatever to take in a group to Rome. And they get aboard this large grain ship. This is a grain vessel. Um, Rome was fed from grain from Egypt. All right. And so this grain vessel was coming and the center, the guard here commandeered it put Paul and the other prisoners on there, and they're going to take them over to Rome. And they, first of all, they go to Crete. And uh, Paul says, you know, we better winter here, because in those days they didn't have power. They were, you know, really uh, at the mercy of the winds. And they thought, now nah, we'll chance it, and we'll try to go over to this next port. And, of course, they don't make it. You have the Euroquillo show up. They're driven across the Mediterranean and wind up in Malta, which was a Roman colony. 
Um, and then there in Malta, of course, you have the shipwreck and Paul basically saying, unless we all stick together, we're not going to be safe. Because what did the mariners want to do? Want to get in the boat and take off and leave the rest of them to fend for themselves. Not only that, but what did the Roman guards want to do? Kill all the prisoners, right? Because if the prisoner escapes, they're responsible. You know, then the Roman government couldn't care less whether it was in the middle of a shipwreck or not. You're still responsible to guard that man. And the centurion said, no, we're not going to do that. Why? Because of Paul. Because of Paul. And, of course, then you have the account where Paul gets uh, bitten by the snake and doesn't die. And that not only gives him an opportunity to, to witness there to the people on the boat, but also the head man of the island. And his father was healed. Other people were healed. And that gave Paul the ability to preach the gospel to everyone that was there. Is that our pizza? They all know you. Yeah. Yeah. And see, again, that all I'm saying that for those who want to, you know, get on healing, um, he healed every disease. You know, he didn't have a backache night and a headache night and a whatever night. You know, they came with any disease. They were immediately healed. And that was so that he could preach the gospel to these Gentile people. And then he makes his way from Malta in chapter 28. Makes his way over to Rome. The figurehead was the twin brothers, Castor and Pollux. Remember Castor and Pollux? There's a constellation, Castor and Pollux. Right? Um, it gave him, and it basically gives his trip to Rome. And uh, what's he do in Rome? He calls the Jewish leaders together that are there in Rome and gives them an account of what happens, why he's there. And his final warning to them is what? Passed up on salvation. Don't harden your hearts. This is one of the most quoted passages in Isaiah in the New Testament. Where he blinds and hardens your heart. He said, Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. What verse is that? That is um, chapter 28, verses 26 through 27. Okay. Um, the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome in a house, right? Yeah, he did that. Not in not in Acts. Okay, so what happened after Acts? What happened after Acts? Yeah. Well, church history has to fill us in on that. Um, Paul did appeal to Caesar. He did stand before Caesar, and he was released. All right. Now, while Paul was in Rome, what did he write? Prison epistles. Philippians, one more, Colossians, the four prison epistles, he, he, he wrote the four prison epistles, shortly after he wrote those he was released, and how do we know he's released, well, 1 Timothy fills us in on that, alright, Paul was released for a time, some even say he was able to preach the gospel in Spain. And then under the great Neronian persecution of A.D. 64, Paul was arrested again. Arrested very quickly. In fact, he was arrested so fast he didn't have time to get his coat. At that point, he was taken to Rome and placed in what's called the Mamertine prison, which is not a very nice place. It's a hole in the ground, basically. You drop people in. And if it gets too full, you just drown them all. Pull the, haul the bodies out and put a fresh batch in there. It was a pretty brutal place to be. And it was in the Mamertine prison that Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. He actually wrote them in order of 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. All right. And then sometime around AD 65, Paul was martyred for his faith. Romans was written from Ephesus, remember? Earlier in the third missionary journey. Paul was murdered. Paul was martyred somewhere around AD 65, 66. Romans was probably written somewhere around AD 56. He was beheaded. 
Um, as a Roman citizen, you are not allowed. As a Roman citizen, you did not have to go to the Colosseum. You did not have to get thrown to the lions. Um, you were not crucified. The, the mode of capital punishment was beheading by the sword. That was Peter. Pardon? That was a break. No. The second time he was arrested is because Nero had blamed the burning of Roman on Rome on the Christians. And Paul was a Christian, which immediately made him an enemy of the state. He was the number one Christian. So he's immediately all Christians were immediately arrested. And those that were Roman citizens, you know, they had death by beheading. Others were thrown to the lions. That was the great Neronian persecution. What, um, where is that account of him being beheaded at in That's from church history. Oh. It's not from the scriptures. It doesn't say he was beheaded in the scriptures. He was a Roman citizen, which means he would have been beheaded. And church history, Eusebius writes, I think it's Eusebius that wrote, that he was beheaded under the reign of Nero. Now, Peter was crucified upside down. Why? Because Peter was a Jew. He would not have been beheaded. He would have been crucified. They saw beheading as a very quick and merciful form of capital punishment. Crucifixion was not. Huh? James was. Yeah. Now they could they could behead non-Jews. They could do that. But but if you were a Roman citizen, you were not you could not be crucified. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's close uh, the class in prayer. Father, thanks for this class and for being able here to study your word. And I pray that uh, we might have remembered some things here. We might have seen your hand in history. And if nothing, understand that you controlled the growth of the early church. You were providentially there all the way through. Thank you, Father, for this time that we've had to study and for this day and for your goodness and for this food that we have to eat in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.